Okay, welcome to Idea Market Podcast. You're joined by me, James Ellis, uh, CEO Mike Elias, and we are joined by Visa, um, prominent blogger, YouTuber, motivator extraordinaire, uh, chief of productivity. It seems you're doing you're doing a lot. I feel like I can't describe really everything you're doing online. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on your website, a lot of time on your YouTube, and there is. Uh, there's so many directions we could go in with this interview, um, but but you know, thanks for joining us. And Visa, just how how would you describe yourself? Well, you know, so I I, I try. That's a it's a feature, not a bug. I try to do lots of different things at once, and I you know I tend to tailor my description of what I do based on who I'm talking to. So I mean, in a context where we're talking about idea market type things, uh, I guess I would say that I am a person who tries to build audiences and try and connect people to each other, build social graphs, you know, just, I mean, I mean, even that sounds a bit pretentious. I just, I just try to find lots of good, interesting people and introduce them to each other. That's what I do. I write a lot. Yeah. 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 I think you've, you've earned a reputation for doing that really well. Um, and in particular, I think I just watched one of your 100 videos and you were talking about finding the most ambitious people in the world and introducing them to each other. And you went into some detail explaining that by ambition, you don't mean the typical, you know, mm -hmm. $10 billion, climb the corporate ladder, take over the world right. kind of ambition, but something else. Can you, what exactly did you mean by ambition and what, what is like electrifying you and people who show that? Right. So um, if you dig into the etymology of the word, like, you know, the MB in ambition is the same as MB in ambulance and ambulate, which means to move around. And uh, originally in, I believe, uh, Greek or Roman times, not sure which, they, they would use it to describe people who want to get into a political office or just people who would go around and talk to people and canvas for votes or, you know, just try to build that, that communal um, connections. And it's, I, I'm not particularly sure how it has come to mean, I think, I think in the, in the standard definition of ambition these days, it's associated with prestige seeking with, you know, yeah, so money, power, corporate letter stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like there is, it's worthwhile to try and distinguish the two. So I think Paul Graham said in an essay, something like, uh, if you do anything really, really well, you'll make it prestigious. Whereas, uh, you know, like I think he was talking about jazz music where these days we kind of think of jazz as classy and, and you know, refined and sophisticated. But when jazz was first introduced and people were coming up with jazz, it was irreverent, chaotic. It was stuff that people did just to, to be at the cutting edge of their field. And at the time it was considered, you know, kind of um, uncouth, kind of um, rebellious and uncivilized. And similarly, I feel like, uh, you know, some people might say that cryptocurrencies, right, are, are what is the equivalent today or, you know, just something that is not yet kind of um, in popular imagination, not yet so esteemed that it's considered prestigious and, you know, parents push their children to go and do that because it's a guarantee of social status and, and uh position in society but i think that 
there's something upstream of that where you do something really, really well that creates value that's of of worth in some way and then that becomes prestigious. I think that's a more interesting game to play rather than try to climb a ladder that somebody else already put, right? And I mean, there's some self-serving element in this in that I think I am constitutionally incapable of playing established games. Like I get bored very easily and quickly and... I, I have met people who are good people who are good at playing those games, you know, where there's an existing rule book and they follow the rule book really, really well. I get bored reading rule books, right? So I know that I will never be, you know, I will always be like playing from a losing game. I'll, I'll always be playing a losing game if I'm trying to climb a ladder. So I got to find, uh, you know, off the beaten path kind of opportunities. And I mean, I, I, the way I'm describing it now, it sounds very deliberate, but it's, it's really just doing what I like and, and pursuing what I'm interested in. And I was just always been, you know, if, if someone's, if there's a ladder and someone's climbing it, it's like, let's figure it out. Someone solved that already. It's, it's done. I, I want to go where the interesting stuff is. That makes perfect sense. And I'm struck by how the focus on depth, I love, I like the way you put it in that by doing something really well that brings the prestige as though depth itself is the factor that makes the difference uh yeah i mean it might it might be that that, yeah it it might be that you know you find something and you do it really really well to a deep degree and that doesn't translate very far so it could be that you know you it becomes prestigious only in like a small subculture i think there's a lot of examples of things like that like uh, in in fandoms and and theater maybe or just just things that not everybody appreciates but there's some small group of people who appreciate it and within that group um, you can accumulate a lot of you know kudos status value and and be a valued member of that community for contributing and i'm kind of trying to think about the meta version of, of that game at scale globally where you know again it's like Every there's a remix to be made here about uh, I haven't thought about this yet, but like you know the quote about I think it's a Tolstoy quote maybe that like all happy families uh, I can't even remember the precise is it is it the happy families are alike and I think yeah I think it's happy families are alike and unhappy families are unhappy in their own way like similarly so, it's yeah. there's there's something like um, just every prestigious every every, every kind of um, serious pursuit. In, in any field, right? Whether it's in athletics or in music or in theater, in, in the arts, like there are similarities in all of the ways that status games emerge. And when I say status games, I don't, I don't mean that like pejoratively. I think of it as it's a way of allocating, um, you know, just social value, right? Like people, people feel that something is good. And then like there, there are many different games you could be playing in many different contexts. And there are similarities in how good games, good social status games seem to play out. And I think that's worth studying. It's worth understanding. And if you can understand the general principles of it well, and you can teach it to other people, then people can ideally, hopefully, um, navigate their own games in their own local communities or their own local niche niche interests and nav- and they can navigate those well because so, so for example there are pitfalls right there are certain things that's like um you know if there is some way in some scene that you can you know if people notice that oh all the most established players in this scene they all seem to have certain um 
markers, right? Like some, like they might drive a certain car. I don't know. They might, they would dress a certain way. Like people do copy that. And because that then becomes like a cheap signal that they can copy. And there are ways in which you can kind of design a scene or a community to try to minimize that. And the more you minimize that, I think, and so, so every, every game, every social game has some kind of proof of work aspect to it, I think. And like uh, the most valuable community, um, community members should be the ones that most contribute to doing the proof of work and kind of moving that game forward. And, but once that game becomes somewhat prestigious and people see, like, oh, there's, there's like cool stuff around here, there's money involved, that's when things get murkier, then people try to do imitations and they'll imitate it. There, there's something about the way that people imitate that's quite predictable. But the, you know, like the, the broader, wider scene of people who might not be super committed to the game itself and they're just hanging out socially, they will fall for it. Right? They will just be like, oh, that looks like it's prestigious in the scene and so I will defer to that. And then once you have that, it's like whatever was the original um, core value of the game that was being played, that gets kind of swept aside and, and people start playing the imitation game. And then, that, and then that scene just becomes boring and tedious and frustrating. And then people start looking for other games to play. And I feel like um, we need people who in every, scene, in every scene, in every pursuit, right? In every, everything that's worth doing, we need people who have the, the knowledge and the insight and the understanding and, and you know, the ability to navigate to, to understand these dynamics so that they can kind of preserve and protect these scenes as long as possible so that the, the valuable work gets done. And yeah, that's kind of the sort of thing that I think about. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I was, I was going to comment on earlier on the, universality of this that mm -hmm. you can go deep in pretty much any direction 360 degrees there's not uh, a formula and there's a very sort of nature-like sprawl mm -hmm. of that that we're supposed yes. to follow our hearts in like 11 million different directions uh individually and it's it's going to be a mystery like the institutionalization of uh pursuit is is the anomaly not the uh the pursuit itself um, yeah I'm reminded of something that uh, Venkatesh Rao tweeted mm -hmm. a little while back, uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about like the factor of success or what allows you to do hard things is just wanting it for real instead of yeah. the psychologically <laughs> adjacent bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny. Right. It's it's funny how much, and this has been a recurring motive for me in multiple dimensions recently as well. Uh and it could just be random, but like it's it's funny how simple everything is. Like I, it's 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 like a it's like a learning that I have been getting to, like in music and in writing and in anything you want to do. And I I you know I'm at a stage in my life now where I get a steady stream of DMs, usually from younger guys who want like advice or help for on whatever they're doing. And the funny thing I've re recurringly noticed is that a lot of guys. And I don't, I don't know if this is gendered. Uh, I, I get some from women as well, but like I, I always notice when it's guys. Like if there's, there's something, there's some something about that. Uh, they come up with these very elaborate, complex, complicated systems for figuring out their motivations and figuring out their goals. And it's like many, many layers, multi, like many, many moving parts. And it's not working out for them. And I'm always like amused by how my questions, like, and and I'm not like trying to like. Uh, 
poke at them a certain way. But like my natural kind of troubleshooting process, it starts with very simple questions like, oh, so what do you want to be doing? You know, like, what do you like? You know, what, what, what's, what do you enjoy? That kind of thing. And they, they always tend to be, they often tend to be surprised at the questions I'm asking. Like, oh, what do I like? Like, you know, isn't, is that important? Like, shouldn't, like I, they might be thinking something like, uh, I should be doing what, you know, what the market wants and overlaps with what is good for the world. And there's all these additional things. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get there. But like foundationally, what do you like? And then the, it's always interesting to witness the the kind of pin drop while they process, like they haven't considered that before. And yeah, I think these really, we it, it's, it's almost comical, but it's also very exciting if it's true. And I think it's true, like that a lot of the, the things that are keeping people from, you know, kind of growing and developing into more effective versions of themselves, better, whatever effective means, right? Whether it's happier, more productive, whatever they want. Uh, it starts with really simple childlike questions. And now I'm reminded of, of language acquisition. And there's this, there's this economist, his name is uh, Robert Frank. And he's a great teacher. And he opens his book. This book is called, I can't remember what the book is called, but it's a book by Robert Frank. And he says, um, he describes how he learned Nepali, the language, when he was volunteering with the Peace Corps in Nepal. And how the, how the Peace Corps volunteers learn a new language is they they speak like children like they keep it really really simple and they use very very simple words and they just practice using those words in many many different contexts and that's how they they manage to learn like passable nepalese in like six weeks and he contrasted that with like i think four years in school where he was learning spanish and he feels that he at the end of the four years he still can't speak any spanish whatsoever and it I get the sense that, and so there's been parallels to this and my experience learning music as well. And I think it's like a lot of the development of skills, It's it requires taking baby steps. It's very, very childlike, very, very rudimentary. And people are almost insulted or offended or, or don't want to believe that progress starts so so small like it's almost it's like it's how can how can it be so simple how can it be so childlike and you don't and, and they don't want to make a fool of themselves they don't want to feel like people are going to see them as primitive and then silly and small but it's like you know it starts it always starts that small and if you refuse to do the baby steps then you're just going to kind of languish in in not not being able to do the harder things and then that gets frustrating so yeah this is a recurring theme for me it's like whoever is willing to behave like a child like in terms of like learning and practicing and being like i, I don't know what does that mean you know like like really what what's going on here like yeah sorry did you say something oh i thought i thought your question was not rhetorical and i said the word innocence as a oh as yeah, a yeah, yeah 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 for yes, child like yes yes Correct, correct. In a sense, yeah, it's very, it's very, um, yeah, the willingness to be wrong and be okay with being wrong. So very often the things, you know, so, so if you want to learn something, you have to know, like, so let's say you want to learn music, you have to know what the wrong note is and what the right note is. If you want to get better at writing, you have to, that sort of thing, you want to get better at presenting your ideas. So let's, let's talk about writing and presenting of ideas, right? Um, people don't feel and people people are kind of conditioned by school where you're expected to write essays of a certain length and use certain vocabulary and blah 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 and so there's this illusion that is created with the kind of uh, filler words and stuff that people use that people don't generally people don't feel comfortable stating what they think in very simple terms because the, you you worry that people will contradict you they'll point out what is wrong or what is you know that's silly that's foolish 
But that's what you need to do in order to progress to less foolish conceptualizations of your idea. So you have to present your mistakes. And people are afraid of presenting their mistakes. And so they, they kind of cloud up their mistakes with, with filler. And when you cloud up your mistakes with filler, you can't learn. Like you can only learn by making the mistake clearly, facing up to it. And like, uh, I just saw somebody just tweeted at me a quote from, I think, well, some old author. It might be Duran, the, the, the guy who wrote history, the epic history of civilization. Oh, well, but Durant, he was yeah. saying... I think so. But he was saying, I, I don't know if that's him for sure, but like the quote was something like, uh, become a connoisseur, of, a connoisseur of your mistakes. Like really, you know, love your mistakes and understand where the, what went wrong. Like, and, and people don't feel comfortable with that. And I think children are quite naturally comfortable with it because they haven't learned to feel like a lot of shame and, and you know, embarrassment at making mistakes. They're just playing, they're just dancing around, spilling paint. And yeah, so it's... It's it's such a recurring thing that I see in so many domains where people say they want to get better at something, but then when you investigate why they're struggling, it's in it's things like you know somebody will say I want to become a better writer. I'll be like, oh, what have you written so far? And they'll be like, oh, I've written like two blog posts. I'm like, oh, write write like a, a hundred blog posts, dude. Then then come back and talk to me. And he's like, oh no, you know, surely I can get better. I'm like, no, you can't. You just have to have that volume. And it's it's interesting how people resist. They resist the idea of doing something simple at high volume. Like they, they feel like there must be some clever way to do it fast, but there, there isn't. It's, re- it's really mundane how, how you d- develop excellence. Yeah. And as, as you're talking about the motivations of, of bloggers, that people who say they want to be a good writer and then won't do the hundred things, it makes me wonder if proof of work has a particularly tight relationship to that kind of inner honesty like if you Mm. want something for itself instead Mm. of because you want to wear this label or you want people to think of you as x then maybe you're more willing to do the thing maybe you don't yeah to tell you to do the thing yeah i think i think it's very healthy especially um to have some domain in your life where you kind of uh, measure your progress if you want to measure your progress I mean, to just have some domain where volume of output is something that is how you navigate, you know, whether it's writing or painting or making podcasts or whatever, making videos like um, because if you're agonizing internally about wanting to be a good writer or wanting to be a good photographer and and you're like researching how to take good photos and then, you know, you've borrowed a book from the library about like, uh, you know, all the photography labels and stuff, but you just got to make take more photos and you know like every day that you're taking photos you're getting better at becoming a photographer i think there's a quote from quentin tarantino where he's describing filmmaking and he his perspective you know like so tarantino has some um unpalatable views on some things but his view on creativity i completely agree with he's like if you love movies very much you can't help but make a good film like you just you don't need to know what kind of camera you're using you don't need to know all the details of like the the aspect ratios or whatever like you just trial and error pick up a camera try and film something look at the thing that you filmed ask yourself how does it feel what is it like is it good is it bad what what do i like about it do i do i like you know is it and then you just interrogate it over and over again and just make more and more films and you keep you know ah the last one was too you know it's too fixed i need more movement or oh, this one was too you know because you have taste and the taste will guide you to making the work that you want to make and this like applies to everything you know it's like friendships and conversations and and quality in all domains right it begins with you have to seek the quality and you have to know what you like and what you don't like Like, it's very simple actually but people trip up because i think they try to think ahead they try to think ahead of the work 
But the work is how you think. And, you know, sometimes people do a lot of research trying to know as much as they can before they do the thing. And that's a trap because it, it raises your expectations of, you know, you feel like now that I've read so much, I must be good at the thing. And then when you do it and you're bad at it, you feel, you feel worse. And it, d- it delays the amount of time until the first thing that you make. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's a trap. It's a, it's a common trap that I see people fall into. It's like over-intellectualizing, accumulating information, you can, which you can do forever, right? And uh, you, you just need to take action at some point. And, and you know, the, the only thing you really need to know before you do something is, how do I avoid catastrophic failure? Like, how do I not get injured or hurt or that sort of thing? And that's usually like a couple of lines of instruction should, should get you there. You know, like don't, you know, yeah, just you can, you can fill in your own, your own examples, but that's that. You want, you want to get as much time with the craft as you can. Where do you, where do you think that attitude comes from? You know, the attitude of believing that there's going to be some magical leap so we don't have to just do things simply. It's not, People don't think that they actually have to do the simple steps. Where do you think that attitude comes from where they, everyone seems to think there's going to be some magical antidote to becoming great? Um, I think part of it is that we valorize geniuses, like which is to everybody's detriment. It's the detriment of geniuses. It's the detriment of people who want to become geniuses, right? Um, we don't see the body of work that people do. We don't see um, the the kind of interim steps, the, the process by which they go about the thing. And and then when we interview people who have like you know like achieved great things, we the interviewers tend to try and get a sound bite, right? Like so, so I guess the, the short answer to your question is I think it's it's like media poisoning. It's like people are, are misled by the media they consume. And by media they consume, I don't just mean news right like it's like movies and and just everything it's like a you know you, you always see like the you know the trend this, this is a great blog post um or just an article on crack.com from a long time ago um uh it's and one of the things it talks about is effort shock which is that basically anybody who tries to do anything anything substantial um they almost always face effort shock because they were almost always misled like nobody is accurately telling you just how much work goes into anything right so like uh if you take like a like an olympic medalist winner you see them you see them on on in the stadium and then you see them get the the podium and it's like you don't see the thousands of mornings they wake up every single day to train which is like it's super mundane and it's monotonous and it's repetitive and I think even if you could watch like a video of somebody, I mean, you can't watch one video of all of the training because that's thousands of hours. And if you compress it into some kind of training montage where you like do like a few seconds of each training thing, that still doesn't, you know, unless you're watching a person train every day. I think I think that's one thing that if you have like a sibling, for example, who is an athlete or so, like someone in your life personally has been working on a thing for really, really long and they get really, really good at it. I think that... Uh, that disabuses people of the notion that there's some clever thing you can do or say that gets you straight to the end. So, so it's like you, the, 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 the kind of um, selection bias thing is we interview people at the end and we kind of pressure them to say something clever or they themselves feel obliged to say something clever. And I mean, it might be a genuinely clever thing, but they got there with like tremendous amounts of work. But we, we, there's, like a, there's almost like a bandwidth problem, right? To, to seeing the volume of work that they've done. Um, but I mean, so the great thing about publishing, so for like, uh, especially online, right? Like, uh, if you have a YouTube channel or if you have a blog, if you see that someone has been blogging for a long time, then like, you know, you can see for yourself the volume, right? Uh, I remember thinking this about 
Morgan Housel. I don't know if you guys know him, but he he wrote a book recently called The Psychology of Money or something like that. And just even before he wrote the book, I saw him on Twitter and it feels like I didn't know him because he wasn't in like my social circles. I didn't know him. And I saw a few tweets, a few passages of text. And I'm like, holy shit, who's this guy who's incredibly good writer who's come out of nowhere? And then I found out that he used to write for fool.com and he has written over like 3,000 plus articles on fool.com. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like <laughs> I'm always, you know, it's, it's always scary for me a little bit when I encounter a writer and they seem phenomenally good. And always when I start to dig into the details, I'm like, oh, this guy has written thousands of things. You know, I've been reading uh, Emerson recently, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Emerson gave like a thousand lectures like on, on like in across the US. And it's like, you know, giving so many lectures as a minister, Alan Watts is the same. He was giving like, he was doing like radio talk shows every day. And just that that volume of doing things, it will get you to a place very, very far removed from if you just start out. And yeah, we, I, I think one important thing that would be worthwhile kind of communicating and transmitting to the world is just how much can change a person through large volumes of output of any kind, right? And uh, our intuitions for this are, mis- are still broadly miscalibrated. And I do think we have a like the modern media technologies means that we can have a better shot at correcting this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I agree with the idea that it's a compression problem, that mm-hmm. there's no way to represent all the effort that goes into something in something that can be expressed in a moment or received in a moment. My mom was a professional French horn player. She was the first horn of the Cincinnati Symphony for 18 years I grew up wow. there. She went to Juilliard, played music in movies that you've probably seen, like the whole amazing thing. And she was always practicing when I was a child. You know, she had, you know, four, five, four hours a day or, or more practicing in the basement. And so I was super exposed to that. It was like having a sibling athlete in a way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to have affected me very much because I'm still just as subject to the uh, desire to get there quickly as, as anybody else. Um, hmm, that's interesting. But yeah, I guess yeah. it's like it's like gel man amnesia. Are you familiar with that? So I think Michael Crichton was talking about how, yeah. you know, you read the papers and then you see a news article about your subject matter of expertise. And then you're like, oh my goodness, this journalist doesn't understand what they're talking about. They're getting the causality wrong. This happened, then that happened. Actually, it's the other way around. And then like everything doesn't make sense. This person is clearly, you know, writing an article about a subject that they've just encountered. And then you turn the page and the next page is like, oh, you know, something in the Middle East is happening, something oil prices. And you're like, oh yeah, things look bad. You know, it's just the moment it's a domain that we are not familiar with. You're like, oh, you know, I'll take their word for it. <laughs> because I, I mean, right. that's actually something interesting as well, because um, to resist this requires an almost antagonistic perspective on, on life, right? Which is, uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell's book about talking to strangers, like he talks about this, like the people who are early to detect scams, early to notice that, oh, like this, this guy is cheating people of their money or this person is being whatever. Like there, there's a certain personality type that is very attuned to identifying when other people are bullshitting. But they tend to be not listened to because they're they're like fundamentally kind of abrasive and distrustful to begin with, which is why they're like, no, no, wait, like what that person just say, you know, like they want to verify everything. And that doesn't, that isn't a very natural way of being for like just casual social life. And so like we do most, most of us, I think are wired to kind of take people at their word. 
And when you in, when you add all the media distortion and all the incentives for everything, uh, it becomes very difficult. I think my ex boss had a, had a and my ex my ex boss is quite a rigorous guy, and he said something like, um, just like sense making, like trying to really understand things is like a debilitating process, like because it it really goes against all your instincts and intuitions, and even and if you want to do it with other people, like you have to. And you want to have like a a, a non ostracized social life, like you have to develop all these skills. You have to be like you have to learn to kind of placate people while almost interrogating them if you really want to know what's true. And yeah, it's just it's it's pretty wild to think about. Yeah the the notion of truth seeking being a debilitating process is even in the in the Bible in certain ways. Like oh, uh, I think Solomon wrote, uh, "He who increaseth." Wisdom increaseth sorrow. Uh, it's not very yeah. encouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Have you watched uh, the Big Shot, the movie? Yes, it's like it's love the that. same. It's, a, it's the same kind of thing. Like when I last rewatched it, it was just my. You know, the first time I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my god, the the financial system is bananas. But the second time I watched it, it's like I, I already know the plot, so I'm just paying attention to how how people didn't just tell Michael Burr. I mean, in the context of the movie, so I don't know what the reality of it was, but I assume it's similar. Uh, people didn't just tell Michael Burry, oh, I think, you know, that doesn't seem right. They're like, you're in, they will tell him, you are insane. Like what you're doing, no one else is doing what you're doing. So you are, you know, like how dare you? you know, and, and they're almost saying, and so what was he doing, right? He was rigorously examining reality. He was looking into the books. He was looking at the numbers and he's like, wait, this doesn't make sense. But all his peers were choosing to disregard the numbers and they were, you know, following the leader, kind of following, you know, it's like a conga, conga train, right? And, and it's just I was I found myself compelled to like meditate and reflect on the fact that if you try to be rigorous about making sense of what's happening, you will likely be derided as someone who is insane. Literally, you know, like and what what is sanity, right? Like it's deviant behavior, being deviant from the social order, being deviant from social norms. And the thing is, you know, like again, uh, there's some nuance here about how it is true that some people have, you know, let's say like mental illnesses, like brain damage, something's going on that makes it difficult for them to to be well adjusted and to cope. And so they might have, you know, symptoms and they might they might behave in ways that are uh unhealthy for themselves and for the people around them but it also matches you know so it's like a matching problem right like um you you, you're trying to be as as in fact you're trying to be as sane as you possibly can but in in from the frame of reference of like mainstream moderate society they can't tell the difference until afterwards and it's it's uh it's a very very lonely place to be yeah yeah it's very much like first they laugh at you then they ignore you then Mm. they fight you then you win like the yeah. thing in retrospect was perfectly sane and then they valorize your genius. But in the moment, you're you're an enemy of the state. You're you're Socrates, you're Jesus, you're someone yeah. who gets assassinated for poking at the, you know, emotional architecture of society. That that said that said, Mike, though, that doesn't always happen. I mean, you you give the example of Tesla. We we you know, we've got perf- we we understand Tesla now, but still hasn't made we still haven't made the leap. Yeah. I I don't know know quite so much how we understand how much we understand Tesla. I think a few pockets of nerds understand him, but generally his his the scope and significance of his work is kind of suppressed in its significance. Like he wanted mm-hmm. to give wireless electricity to the whole world and basically right. develop the tech to do it pretty easily. And now we have you know little pads that you can charge your phone on while it's still plugged into a wall, and that's wireless electricity. 
a hundred years later. That's pretty paltry improvement. So what happened in the middle of that hundred years? My thesis and one of the big reasons I started Idea Market is because the institutions that have been responsible for managing our knowledge and attention have been actively uh, misguiding it, have been actively yeah. keeping us away from the things that will you know, provide the most social benefit. Yeah. And you know, um, my, my kind of angle on that is that, so some of it may be, some of it may be kind of uh, sinister. But it doesn't even have to be, right? It can just be, it's like, it like goes back to the prestige thing and the ladder thing where, you know, so let's say you're like a young scientist and you you, you want to do science, right? But then, you know, you're, you're, you're getting married, you have a kid, you know, you, you, you have to career to think about, you know, your, your, your wife wants to live in a nice house. And so like, you're like, okay, I'll take the whatever grant I can get or whatever. And, and then, so you have to interface with an institution. And again, it's like the institutions will not pay you to go off into the off the beaten path and in the weird wilderness and try something strange. And so all all progress is like the vast majority of the human enterprise of progress is very, very incremental. It's like they're trying to improve on what happened before. Um, my friend, uh, one of my friends, she wrote a post about so she used to be like a like a world-class body painter. And like so it's a it's a pretty small scene of people who do body painting. And she was saying that, you know, um, in the first few years that she competed, she was and she was like consistently top five, top 10 kind of thing. And she was saying that, you know, she could she understood everybody else in that competition. Everyone knew everyone else and everyone kind of she could she could model what any of the other persons would attempt or what they would try. Like she, she just has a good theory of mind of what they do. And then she said one year there was this new guy who came along from from India. I think his name is San, Sanatan or Santana, Santana something. And he came along with no background experience of, of what those people are doing. So he's, a, he's an artist from another domain. And the first year he came and he did something completely different from what everyone else was doing. And he, he got like, I think he's like out from, from nowhere, he came to like maybe eighth or ninth place. And then the next year he won. And the year after that, he won by a huge margin. And she was saying that what he did was like alien, like shocking to her. Like, because, you know, he, he just all of the, the things that she assumed that and everyone else also assumed was like the, the established order for what good body painting looks like. He completely disregarded that. So they all were kind of doing colorful, you know, kind of uh, like intricate certain things. And he came along with like this dramatic, bold, you know, just like things that were moving people to tears, like just crazy stuff. And that's just an example of, you know, just reading about that. And you're like, huh, that must be true of like every, <laughs> every domain, right? In every class, you know, like uh, what is good writing? What is good music? What is good science? What is good? You know, where should we be? Like, it's just, it's theoretically possible for someone who hasn't learned the established paradigm to do something that's just, because he wasn't operating with those assumptions, come along and do something completely bizarre. In, and bizarre in relation to what the established establishment is, right? Uh, I found the story of this guy, his name was um, Oleg. He was in, in Russia, I think. The, the guy literally invented LEDs about several decades before the rest of us. But he was like this broke guy who was like in isolation. I think he wrote a letter to Einstein and Einstein didn't reply. Like just kind of sad, lonely. And like he died in when there was like, I think like war broke out. And then it's just a very sad story. And, and it's one of the things that motivates me to do what I do, which is like to try and find guys like Oleg who will be weird, right? You try to talk to them and they don't make sense because they, they are operating on a different 
timeline, different framework, different lens, and like try to interface with them. I, I can kind of speak their language a little bit. Like I do think, you know, there's a certain act of translation involved. And I feel like if I can find these people and kind of connect them to a network of other people who are receptive to the idea at least. And I think, you know, if, if you go all the way to the extreme end, some of those people will say, even us, even we who are relatively more sympathetic, we still can't understand. But like, mm, you know, I think it's, it's worth a try, right? It's worth, if there's like a 1% shot of finding someone who advances some domain by 20 years, like that's a gift to humanity, right? So that's worthwhile. Yeah, and that aligns really closely with Idea Market's core thesis as well. Mm-hmm. The notion mm-hmm. that the future is already here, but it's not evenly dis- uh, distributed or there's nothing new under the sun. Like basically, I assume just from researching crackpots on the internet that for every problem, some crackpot in his basement has fixed it. Yeah. He has found a solution. Like the imagination of humanity is so much greater like as a totality than we've been led to believe and that than we really benefit from. So what I'm hoping right. is that by enabling people to profit by elevating these people by finding people like Oleg, having that be sort of a venture uh, opportunity financially, that people will seek out these people more reliably than they currently do without that kind of motivation. Yeah, that's exciting. That that needs to happen, right? Like, and and the thing is, you know, um, you know, I've seen memes that's like, you know, I think there's, there's this meme of like a, a a guy at a computer turning back to his wife, and he's like, "Hey, honey, I've I've found something that all the top scientists in the world have missed," right? And it's like a, Did the, you the joke that yesterday. I think I just saw that, like a like a. Um, I don't think I retweeted it, but I've seen it do a few rounds, right? And it's like... just trying to give you credit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are people who are kind of like unhitched and misled and they they don't have an independent framework for making sense of what they make sense of. So yeah, you know, it's easy to laugh at the people who are wrong. But like, it is entirely possible that, that there are things that institutions miss because institutions are not incentivized to be rigorous about finding the truth. You know, like, and I have like, like crazily simple examples in which like the media establishment gets things wrong. Like literally open a new tab right now and Google like, uh, is Mark Zuckerberg left-handed or is Steve Jobs left-handed? And there are people who say that they're like news sites that put these guys on the list that Mark and, and Steve Jobs are left-handed. And you can find, you can find photographs of Steve and Mark writing on the whiteboards with their right hands. So they are, they're verifiably right-handed. But like people don't do that basic level of fact checking and then it gets, it gets, you know, replicated over and over again and it becomes, you know, so that's one example that I can point at and say that's obviously wrong. And my friends are like, okay, Visa, like, why are you? <laughs> so what? You know, like sometimes media make, sometimes the media makes mistakes. I'm like, yeah, but this is, this is a trivial thing and you have to copy this understanding. Again, it's like the gel man amnesia thing. You have to realize that this is true for every single piece of information in the whole world. And when you really process that, I think I think people are in denial as in, you know, like to to experience, to, to go about your life and not feel like everything's collapsing. You have to kind of contain how far that idea can go. Because if you really get into it, it's it's gonna, it's like a, like a bad psychedelic trip, I think. It's like really you have a, oh my God, there's nothing stable to stand on. And uh, Richard Feynman has a quote where he's like, you know, uh, I don't know anything for sure. Everything is, I have degrees of, of confidence about different degrees of things. And it's like, it's like that's, a, that's an example of a worldview that attempts to be rigorous. And most people don't. And again, like if, like how many bits of established, so if you think of, of the, the, 
the mainstream global knowledge graph, meaning institutions, governments, media, there's something called there's something we can call a mainstream knowledge graph. And it's full of errors. It's like, just as like a website says Zuckerberg is left-handed when he's not. Similarly, there's like, and you know, there's, there's things that's like obviously malicious. Like people think that, you know, like there's still food pyramids in some countries where carbohydrates are at the bottom with a lot of carbs there. And that was entirely the function of a push of like big bread and big wheat were pushing to get more sales. And so they, they invented that food pyramid and marketed it to health departments who put up posters in doctor's offices. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, you can't talk about these things without sounding like you're crazy. <laughs> but it's true. It's verifiably true. And, you know, the guy who wanted to get doctors to wash their hands, Samuel Weiss, he was beaten and sent to an asylum. So <laughs> we have, uh, I mean, just getting, a, I think, so again, I don't expect to persuade the entire world of this. But I think there are enough thoughtful people who can distinguish like, okay, like what this guy's saying is makes sense, you know, and I can verify it for myself. And if you have like, you know, my, I think right now my dream is something like a hundred thousand people who know of each other in like a loosely connected scene where if anything's valuable or important, we can transmit information through that social network. And that's what social networks should be for. But like, again, like, again, as, as just as how food pyramids are weird and whatnot, like, um, one of my central talking points is that social media is not even like 1% as powerful as it could be. Like nobody, hardly anyone's thinking about it. And the analogy I use here is that, you know, when the electric guitar was invented in like 1930, everybody just thought of it as, oh, it's like an acoustic guitar, but louder. And so I will use it to play acoustic guitar since it's like an electric guitar it's like an acoustic guitar but it's louder and it doesn't sound as good because the, the amplifier kind of distorts the sound a little bit and it sounds thinner and wirier There's, there isn't a hollow body resonance so it doesn't sound as good and it took 30 years for Jimi hendrix to show up and he's like putting in the distortion and the wah and he demonstrates this is a completely different beast you can do insane things with it and everyone's like oh my god like this guy is, is an alien from another planet and he has demonstrated that this instrument is magic Here's the thing though, there's nothing about the guitar that prevented someone from playing like Hendrix did in 1930, but it took 30 years for someone with, so what I say is that imagination is our bottleneck, right? Like people just didn't imagine that they could do that with an electric guitar because they were still thinking of it as an acoustic guitar. And it took some weirdo to be like, what if I turned it up, right? And I feel that the same is true for social media and just digital technologies. Like, you know, I, the things I say to my friends are like, ah, hyperlinks have not been utilized. You know, we do not know what we can do with the hyperlink. We do not know what we can do with Twitter even, right? All of these things, it's like, it's just we reason from past examples and from his history. We use our old intuitions. And that's just... Ah, there's just so much potential. <laughs> what do you What do you see the next steps of social media being? Where do you think we're heading? Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if that's where we are heading, but that's where I think we can go. Um, it's so like uh, my friend Andrew, he has this quote that's like, "Social media is not optimized for connection; it's optimized for consumption." Right? What they want is they want you to spend more time on site, and they want you to look at ads, and uh, you know that's how they make more money. That's how they increase engagement. And, you know, so for example, on Twitter, I have like 30,000 followers. There's absolutely no help from Twitter to help me process my follower list and look for who is interesting. And I have to manually do that. And I spend a lot of time and energy manually doing this. I spend like hours. I think by now I would have spent a couple of hundred hours 
like manually tweeting and talking to people and scrolling through a list of 30,000 people, see what countries are people from, you know, like so that I can build this database of, and the, you know, Twitter could hand me this information pretty quickly if they wanted to, but they, they don't see this as part of their, you know, job, right? Like, and I, I understand why they do that, but like, it's like a missed opportunity. But like, um, yeah, so I'm trying to build, you know, so I have a Rome document where I list out major cities and people who follow me and like like they can opt in to being put into those major cities and so we do meetups in in every like we had one in austin recently we have new york we have just all over the world like london covid covid kind of slowed me down in this thing i was gonna do like a world tour and then covid happened but like yeah it's this and you know know, the thing is any celebrity any famous youtuber any twitch streamer could do some version of this but hardly any of them are thinking about things this way this way again it's like i feel like it's the electric guitar to to um, acoustic guitar thing, they think, oh, how can I monetize my audience? Like I can sell, I can sell products, I can sell merchandise. I'm like, this is your your level of imagination for what can be done with large volumes of people is like, it's just uh, you haven't you have you're scratching the surface. You know, you can you can burst all the way through and realize that you know uh, these people can potentially coordinate large groups of people to do anything. Like it's it's. Um, so the way I'm framing it these days is like, so people are often asking, oh, you know, church attendance is down. People aren't making friends at work. Like just loneliness is on the rise. And I'm like, oh, you know, eagles, Twitch streamers, YouTubers. These people currently think of themselves as celebrities in, and they think of themselves as media stars in relation to like MTV, 90s stuff. Again, like our intuitions lag behind. But what they really can be is they can, they can kind of be like leaders of nations. You should think of them as leaders of nations. They are, cre- what is a nation? Like Benedict Anderson said, is it Anderson? Is it, a nation is an imagined community. Right? It's a group of people who have some ideas in common. Like it's a religion. You can think of it as like a sort of like a religion. And, you know, so any substantially famous person could get their fan base, if you want to. Again, all of the words we use are so loaded and we assume, oh, a fan behaves a certain way, you know, whatever. But it's really, it's, it's just groups of people who can, you know, I, I can be a bank. Like that's a that's a like an individual can be a bank in terms of for the people in his network, right? And the technology allows this, but nobody says I want to be a bank for my friends. That seems weird, but it can be done. You can you know you can you can be a switchboard. The, the mental model I use for myself is like I am a switchboard to my people, and my people meaning you know outside this phrase I call friendly ambitious nerd, which is all the people who read my book and they kind of get align with that idea like they are all they're each doing their own thing in their own life right i don't want them to like come away with me to go to some compound and isolate ourselves like that's that's again that's another failure of imagination like people saying do you want to start a cult like no you know that's that's again it's it's people's imagination is so limited uh it's it's about you know like i'm thinking so again i I don't have a specific plan because the the pathways will be dependent on opportunities that open up along the way so you have to kind of pay it like you have to keep it in mind and then observe reality adjusting along the way and then when the opportunity presents itself to seize it but uh you know this is i believe the future of like post-national ways of organizing humans right like so you you have some celebrity or again celebrities ah you know there's this there's a group of people who will be like Neo, I think it's a kind of enlightened neo feudalism. Is I think what I have in mind, like warlords, sort of, like people who other people trust and they believe in and they count on. Right? People are always saying like, "Oh, institutions are collapsing. What are we gonna do?" And it's like, "Oh, you know, you, you, 
like stop thinking in terms of institutions and just think in terms of people. An institution is a group of people who come together to do certain tasks and whatever. And like any person today with a platform can just as Hendrix stepped up with the electric guitar, like people are seeing it as, oh, I have a publishing tool, I can publish tweets. But like it's it's you have an alien, you know, um, magic box, right, where you can guide people to doing things. You can you can introduce people to each other. You can be a one man dating app. You can be a one man you know, church, right? Like, and all of the things that come with that. And if you use that power wisely, right? And so I, in, I, you know, I've been reading a lot about like Pericles and, and uh, Al-Mamun, who was the caliph of Baghdad when they made the Baghdad House of Wisdom. Like these, these are the kind of guys that I'm, I'm trying to learn from, right? Uh, they assemble the people around them to do great things and, and build libraries and build, you know, things that lasted hundreds of years. And that is possible, and I hardly see anybody talking about it, which is drives me a bit nuts. I do, I do think there's a slight problem where if I'm overly explicit about this in text on Twitter, for example, uh, I might attract the wrong kind of attention because it's like there's, there's a class of people who, again, it's what we're talking about about scenes, right? There's a class of people who want to be socially associated with people who seem cool and interesting, but they don't really want to do any work. Like, uh, you know, if I get a bunch of like fanboys and, you know, so I think, and I'm sure you guys can think of some examples, people who tweet like um, just fortune cookie kind of stuff. And then if you do that, if I started, so I currently have 33,000 followers. If I tweeted fortune cookie shit, I can grow it to 100K, 500K. It's possible. I, I'm a marketing guy. I know how to do that. But when you do that, your comment section then becomes full of noise from people just kind of, people who aren't interested in having conversations. They just want to associate with that. Oh, there's a charismatic you know, celebrity figure there. I want to hang out with him. And then it's like, I can't spot Oleg in the noise. You know, I need to find Oleg. I need to find the guys who are doing interesting work. And no one is... It doesn't. It seems to me like hardly anybody is explicitly optimizing for this. Like, uh, so it's which strikes me as an oppor- like a like an opportunity that is it's still untapped. I, I think the people who know me and like some people in my circles, they are wisening up to the idea and they are trying their own versions of it, which I encourage. Because again, the amazing thing about like networked things is that once you understand the way I'm approaching these things, like you yourself can do your own version of it in your own city, in your own friend group. You know, you can, anybody can at any time ask their friend group, like, hey, so what's everyone working on? Right? So this, this happened. I tweeted this about a few months ago. I tweeted, um, is anybody working on anything strange and interesting? And this guy, Shloms, I don't know if you know Shloms, he tweeted, I do. Oh, I'm trying I love to, Shloms. Right? So I, there's a, Shloms figured out how to sell his artwork in the replies to one of my tweets. Where he, so I, I said, what are you doing? That's interesting. And Shlom said, oh, you know, I'm thinking of selling this art project NFT thing. And, but it's like a bit crazy. I don't know what to do. And then he, he posted the idea. And then I remembered I have this friend Ronan. And Ronan is like this kind of artsy, this guy who understands like art and selling art and stuff like that. So I, I introduced Ronan to Shlom's in that tweet. And then Ronan suggested something. Shlom's got an idea. And the next thing Shlom's sold his, his, started selling his artwork for thousands of dollars. And it's like, yeah, you can, you know, like that to me is, so I want to replicate that interaction 10,000 times, 100,000 times, right? And if you keep doing that, you keep creating wealth, right? And and people in the area, they get richer and they know each other and they come up with new and interesting, exciting ideas. There's a guy who's working on like a battery something and he met someone else in my, men- like I, he met someone else in my mentions who like gave him funding or in, an introduction to someone who funded his project. And like, yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to do this at scale. And I think some people try to think of, think of this as like networking or, you know, just kind of uh, 
maybe maybe venture capitalists might try to do something like that. And the edge that I have is that I don't give a fuck about money. <laughs> I don't care about trying to make money from these things. I don't care about like I just want to see awesome shit happen. And so I'm willing to do things for no credit. I'm willing to do things for no financial reward. I just want to see really, really cool things happen. And I think that there are things that can happen that only happen in those dynamics, right? Because there isn't a, like, I'm not asking people to come to a meeting and then I give them a term sheet. Or like, I, I, I don't have a stomach for that. I just I just want to see cool shit happen. And yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it just feels like there's so much opportunity here that people are not seeing. But I, I think, I mean, they'll, they'll get around to it. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, 100%. And now I'm going to go down the list of about 10 things that I wrote down while you were speaking that I want to just throw mm-hmm. out there and see if any catch you here. Uh, we'll go in reverse chronological order. The, what you're talking about, about making making these connections that make cool things happen, uh, I completely identify with uh, when I was new to crypto. I don't come from a tech background or a finance background, so I was doing operations in biz dev. And what you described sounds like something that I've described to others as, as like a biz dev instinct. Like mm. you're, I've, I've, I've remember feeling frustrated when there would be two super cool people who would, you know, combine on a project perfectly, but they might not for the sheer dumb luck of them not knowing each other. Yeah. Just yeah. The, the sheer dumb luck of the universe bothers the shit out of me. And I, same. I, I, I sense that same feeling in you. Yeah. There's a thousand Lennons and there's a thousand McCartneys and they don't know each other. So I'm going to find yeah, all of them and kind of, that's it. Yeah, that, it's right. Right. And just that, I, uh, as, as you know, very well, it can be the source of so much uh, value and, and generativity. You were saying a while back about institutions, institutions versus people as authorities, that institutions are breaking down and individuals are kind of rising up as the uh, single point of trust. I'm very optimistic that that could go well, because when you think about how responsibility is diffused throughout an institution, it kind of results in calamity every single time. If you have a lemonade stand and someone gets sick from your lemonade, it hurts your heart. Like that's a, that's a me problem, my goodness. But if you're the CEO of Walmart and someone buys lemonade at Walmart and dies, it's like, okay, you know, lawyer number 512 will deal with that. It's not, doesn't even register. The responsibility is diffused across, you know, many people and no one in particular, and the many hands make light work. So I think there's, given that there's so much more potential for connection with the consequences of your judgments and actions as an individual, individuals as authorities could work out really well compared to institutions as authorities. Yeah. I mean, so this is a problem that I'm very deeply passionate about. And so because I care about it so strongly, I don't just look for things that confirm what I know, right? I try, I try, I, I red team myself, right? I try to look for the opposite arguments. And it is true, I think, that there's a dark side to this as well, which is that the people, it's, it's like the classic leadership problem. The people who are likeliest to rise to the top are the people that you don't want doing this because, you know, it's, it's the charismatic, sociopathic, you know, kind of, evil like demagogues right people who get rise to power rise to build their audiences by insulting other people demonizing an out group right there's all of that and yeah so my my thing is almost like I'm, i'm not like that and if there's no one like me doing it then like all of the examples we have are shit so we need we, you, like we need to encourage the people who almost don't really want to do it because they feel like you know ah uh, you know like it's 
it, there are all the like heavy it's it's it is a kind of neo feudalistic thing it's like heavy is the hit right? like i don't want to wear the crown you know i don't want to be in charge. like all the more why you should kind of step up yeah yeah and that feeling of of reluctance especially among uh people who tend to reflect a lot like some some famous quote that says the uh the bertrand russell right the intelligent are full of doubt yeah yeah exactly exactly the cocksure Sutton. yeah right yes and that there's a, a message that's really spoken to me or a sentiment is only you can do this and i think when we're talking about uh depth as being the determinant of quality as individuals becoming authorities uh that that is a way that you know reluctant thoughtful people might be sort of crowbarred into taking a leadership position and you know in a social social way yeah yeah i mean um so yeah while i have some reluctance you know i i wouldn't you know i wouldn't push someone who's like completely reluctant so i do think that there are certain there are certain personality traits or certain um origin stories that lend people to to this sort of of uh role better than others and if anyone's listening and they're curious uh, i feel like so i was born in singapore i'm a minority in my country and even amongst the minorities like i'm kind of a a little bit neuro not neurotypical you know a bit of a nerd a bit of all those things and uh you know i found some parallels between my story and like uh you know not not to say that i am like those people but uh, i was reading about you know, so Barack Obama is one. Like, if ignore his presidency entirely, like, let's not talk about him as president. Just that he is a half black, half white guy who you know became like the the Harvard head of uh, law. Was it Harvard head of law? He, he was the, the uh, you can look it up what what he, what he did before he became like becoming a senator and stuff like that. And he, if you examine his life, he rose to that position. If in my opinion, the way I would frame it is almost like he because he didn't belong in any single in group. Like he didn't have a you know he didn't feel entirely at home amongst his black friends. He didn't feel entirely at home amongst his white friends. He had to kind of find a way to unify people and to to do this community manager kind of stuff for his own psychological social well being. There are a couple of other people like this. Uh, Trevor Noah is another example. So Trevor Noah is literally he was born half black, half white in South Africa. And during the time of apartheid, and so he had to learn to be charismatic and kind of uh, win people over. And you don't, and you don't have the privilege of being able to like demonize some outsider because you yourself are an outsider. So if it's like if you try to do that, you're going to be next on the block at some point. So you have to be very inclusive. And uh, another example is this lady called Bozoma Saint John. She used to be like a, a head at at uber and then an apple like she's this very accomplished corporate person and she's kind of the same she was like born in ghana i think and she moved to the u.s and she's like not quite american not quite african and it's like all these people who are like miss so basically misfits right cult so the examples i've given are kind of like racially misfit but there's, there's all kinds you know people who are queer people who are neurodivergent just it's and I find I find something beautiful in the idea that it's the outcasts and the misfits who manage to learn how to interface well with people. They will be the ones, I believe, who kind of teach humanity how to fit better with itself, right? Because they had to learn it. Like they didn't just, they, they had no table to sit at when they were growing up. And so they had to build their own table. And so they can teach other people how to come together and, and have family and have disagreements constructively and all of those things. And I think people with that kind of background, like, yeah, we do have a certain like 
thing to prove that, that, that I think it's kind of healthy, right? Like it's, we, we get off on seeing a, a great family gathering or a great group of friends having a potluck. Like that, that really makes us want to do more of that. And I think those are the kind of traits that I would want in like somebody who's like trying to be a leader in, in any domain for me personally. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I also like the pattern of reconciling opposites, like both black mm. and white. You have to deal with conflicting yeah. cultures and harmonize them within yourself and then be something that can go in a third direction, like riding a bicycle. Yes. If, you, if you're not yes, moving, exactly. you can fall yeah. left or right. But if you can find a third direction that ties the two together in a way that works, that's a supreme power. That's exactly it. You know, so I was mentioning Pericles earlier, like I was reading his um, funeral oration. Fellow said this out loud 2,000, no, 1,600 years ago. Hey, wait, it's like 400 BC or is it 400 AD? 400 BC, I believe. I don't know much about Pericles. You could tell me either one, and I believe you. No, it's so it's before Christ, right? So it's two yeah. it's two thousand four hundred years ago, and if you should, everyone should everyone should read Pericles' funeral oration. It's fairly short, and it puts like all leadership to shame. Like it's just the 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 vision that he describes to his people for his for Athens, right? And and this guy's you know he's. He goes on to build the Parthenon and, and you know, like Socrates and friends showed up during his era. And like, it's just a real deal. Pericles, we do not talk about Pericles enough, you know. And uh, in his funeral oration, he's talking about, it's, it's just he presents this vision of like a growth mindset to his people, right? Like we will build great things for the future and our, and our work will echo through the ages, right? People centuries from now will talk about what happened here. And they do, right? You know, and... Uh, he talks about how, you know, we don't like envy our neighbors. We are an example to them. We throw open our doors, let people come and see how we live. And, you know, we, we value rest and we value, you know, the arts and, and we take care of each other. We don't need, we, we don't need to like um, litigate everything because we, we respect each other. Like it's just, just reading that stuff like, oh, wow. He talks about like courage and valor, which like, you know, if, if a politician today talks about courage and valor, it's going to sound like what's bullshit is that guy say and that's sad it's sad that people can't really talk about virtue anymore without sounding like they are you know kind of putting on a show and act or whatever and maybe at the time when he did it some people would have accused him of that as well i think i think there's some amount of that is inescapable but it's just again it's like um i i like reading old history because i think we are very much you know it's the same thing with the hendrix thing again and the guitar thing it's like we we determine what is acceptable or what is how we should do our utterances and how we should act by reasoning from recent history right like uh, recently these things are acceptable and over the past 10 20 years these things are acceptable these things are not but it's all part of like like intellectual fashions that ebb and flow over like decades and centuries so it's very valuable i highly encourage people to read old things from like hundreds emerson's is great i feel like 80 percent of the things that i tweet like emerson already wrote about it montaigne also already wrote about all these things like 500 years ago. 500 years ago montaigne was like the way we teach kids in school is bad and it's not helpful it's so again it's like the wisdom is and so again when we're talking about like truth seeking and figuring out you know how to diagnose problems describe problems like a uh, montaigne's understanding of education is clearly valid in a way that, you know, it, it would be harder if someone comes along and says, hey, I have a way of transmitting electricity through the air. Like that, I, I believe I have a way or whatever. Like we'll be like, okay, prove it, you know, like show us. It's, it's more challenging to, to kind of harbor those things. But like when someone's describing a problem and like the same description of the same problem crops up repeatedly for hundreds of years, it's like, 
you know like why are we not uh, like there's clearly something I mean I can I can spend another hour talking about that specific anecdote so I won't but like uh, it's just the, the the way in which we are conceptualizing the problem is wrong and actually that's the, I guess I would simplify it as that if there's a problem and it has not been solved and progress is not being made on solving the problem it means it's likely that the way in which the problem is popularly framed is self-defeating. It's designed to keep the problem in Unsolved. perpetuity, right? And uh, yeah, and it's it can seem kind of rude to even suggest that, you know, because it's like, um, you know, let's say somebody has... Uh, Okay, so I, I, ha- I have ADHD symptoms, right? Like I, I, I'm a person, I, I, I don't mind saying that I have ADHD, right? But I will also say that I think that ADHD is the wrong frame. And what I mean by it's the wrong frame is if I focus on my ADHD identity, it almost, there's something about the way it's, there's something about the psychology of it, the way you, you make it an identity for yourself. And the, like, it's just, it makes it very difficult to go past that and like to go past that i'm not saying pretend you don't have it or pretend that that label doesn't apply to you but you have to find new labels and new ways of framing things that you want to reinforce and you want to kind of um, build up and and then when you've built up that new identity really really well the old label doesn't quite apply anymore and this is a skill set that you know i'm still i'm still learning this i'm like i, I would say i'm better than average than the, the like I'm, I'm pretty good at it but i'm not like a master yet but uh, I can see I can see something here that deserves uh, much more discussion and, and scrutiny. The idea that almost all of the common problems in like so like maybe the the word education is wrong at this point. Like it's just loaded, and it's when people are talking about how do we solve education, it's like I mean again, it, it depends on what audience you're talking to. Like if if you have a national audience, then like getting them to debate the meaning of a specific term might be not very fruitful. But the, I would bet that the solution comes from people who are thinking at the cutting edge, where they are like rethinking the entire model altogether right like uh yeah people some people say healthcare is 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 modeled on like the disease treatment model right and like that's just the wrong way of thinking about health i have a friend who's very passionate about this and she's like it's ridiculous that we are not testing our you know kind of like our the 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 kpis of our body right like our hormonal rates and our all those things like we only start to test these things once they've already gone bad and like prevention could solve this in yeah. many it's like yeah there's ridiculous amounts of opportunity everywhere and like saying this always sounds crazy but you know 100 percent. and the the metaphor unlocks or blocks off so much there's a, a psychology book that i love called from normal to healthy the implication is that you don't just go to therapy to become normal if you're broken you can also use psychology and therapy to become fully excellent yeah. mature and uh, the I, the standard of normalcy is is pretty darn low anyway, and and mixed in with insanity, given the incentives of of society and all these uh, self imposed bad metaphors. And yeah, with the in the same way that the health industry approaches uh, healthcare from this sort of disease management sort of uh, respect, I think mm. we manage knowledge in a similarly unskillful and limiting way. Because yes. the whole notion of facts being really important, science was founded on the idea that knowledge is tentative, it's uncertain. Yeah. And the notion yeah. of a fact implies this certainty that doesn't mm. really exist. 
And so when we're when we're trying to convince people of the facts, propagate the facts, <laughs> we're sort of manufacturing this certainty and then trying to distribute it and enforce it. And we're not even justified in doing that scientifically, let alone how yes. impossible it is to convince someone of something that they don't want to believe. So uh, idea markets core thesis, or why don't we probably have 25 core theses, but uh, it's, it's that instead of facts, we should be thinking of knowledge as a risk management problem. What do yes. we stand to yes. gain? Yes, yes. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's really, and you know, again, like if you, if you follow through the implications of that, like our entire model of schooling is wrong, right? Because you can't, you no can't question. teach a kid anything if he isn't, he or she isn't, you know, in a context where they have autonomy and they can put their knowledge into practice in a way that affects outcomes that they care about. There's a great quote from, I can't remember her name, but uh, it was, how do we expect to prepare children for a democracy if they don't live in a democracy? Whereas, you know, school is not. Like, they don't get any say in, in their education. And yeah, there's this this class of thing. is It's like a fractal across all of civilization. It actually, when, when I think about it, it actually makes me very, very optimistic because it suggests to me that when we make some sufficient breakthrough in any one of these domains, like that would likely we have opportunity to cascade it across everything else right uh, so i believe it's 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 worth and, and we can increase the odds of these cascades by building relationships of thoughtful people across all of these systems and yeah you know somebody sent me a link to like a 1903 article that said humans are not going to fly for a million years and they they then they try to mathematicalize it they're like oh you know like the amount of research that has to go into it we estimate is a million years <laughs> like you know, yeah. like ten years later we were flying, right? So similarly, there's a lot of doom and gloom about just you know civilizational collapse and 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 yeah, there's some hard limits on certain things, but it was once a hard limit that man cannot fly, you know. And yeah. like we need people to be poking at all these frontiers. When you look at the trajectory of flight specifically as a mm -hmm. series of inventions, it's incredible because in 1903 or 1904. They, they flew, right? And then 50 years later, they're doing jet engines and SR-71s, which is still the coolest plane ever, and going to space. And then there hasn't seemed to be much advancement between you know the moon rockets and what Elon Musk is doing in terms of mm -hmm. metaphor. We're still just doing missiles that point up. And right. that actually makes me kind of suspicious that actually the trajectory has continued you know, in that exponential way, but it hasn't been allowed to spread to public knowledge. Like all this UFO stuff that's happening right now. Oh, that's what you meant. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Seems, seems plausible. You know, I wouldn't. I mean, that's that's so a again, socially like in, in, dangerous yeah. thing to say, but uh, yeah. 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 I wouldn't be surprised and, if. Yeah. yeah. You know, so another thing I would like to try to do is like, can we, now that you say that, I'm like, huh, how do we get people to be more playful and experimental with their knowledge? And this, all, all these things are connected. More playful and experimental yeah. with their knowledge. And not see this as, oh, that guy is cuckoo, right? And, and it's, it's what you say. I, I really like what you say about, about knowledge as risk management, right? So it's like, you know, if uh, we, we have an understanding of each other that, that you know, the, each person seems to be making sense and they seem to have their lives going on okay, right? And then it's like, okay, can we discuss the possibility of, of UFO, space travel, kind of like just stuff that's not in the current Overton window? And then we'll be like, okay, like, you know, I don't know if it's true, but let's discuss it. You know, let, let's, let's consider the possibilities. Uh, I really like what uh, David Deutsch describes as good explanations. 
and he's he so he says that you know like the i'm paraphrasing what he says so i might not get it right but it's kind of like just think of all like nonfiction as an attempt to explain things and like even in science like physics it's, it's an attempt to explain how molecules behave and yeah you know like so what you just described like could it be that there has been uh could that could this be an explanation for ufos you know it's it's worth considering right like and, and then it's like we can we can do like a pros and cons like oh you know maybe it's true maybe it's not like but still like let's 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 have that conversation people's unwillingness to have conversations it's is uh i don't know it, it makes it makes people uncomfortable maybe but, but the cool thing one of my core insights is that we don't need to persuade everyone i think i think that only clicked for me in like the past three or four years like when i was in my mid-20s i think my big anxiety about the world was like oh we will never be able to persuade everybody of what's great like you don't you don't need everybody you just need about a thousand good people who really get it and and like then if you can get those people together to build the next thing then the the proof is in the pudding right the proof is in in whatever it is that you make and then everyone else will will adjust accordingly right like my parents used to always kind of uh, be suspicious of me spending a lot of time on the computer and now they have their now now they are on their phones all the time and it's like i didn't have to persuade them myself that it's worth and you know the, i don't know what they're doing <laughs> so they they yeah. might be into some misinformation stuff i hope not but like um it's just it's interesting to examine the nature of persuasion and the nature of how uh, pref- like preference cascades and how things change. Like we don't need to persuade everyone. We just need to find good people who are sensible and you know people from diverse contexts, so that we're not all engaging in the same kind of potential groupthink. And it's it's like it's a it's a design problem, and we can design and solve it. It's- yeah, I'm very interested in figuring out ways to soften the boundaries between beliefs in conversations. And it's one of the things that mm-hmm. attracts me about markets is that if like everything on NASDAQ is a possibility for you. If you're interested in yeah. computers, you can look at Apple and you can look at, you know, Xiaomi or some tiny, relatively tiny competitor. And you don't have to say Xiaomi doesn't exist. You don't have to be offended at people who like Xiaomi. You don't have to be upset. They're on the playing field. Yeah. There's no denying that they're on the playing field. Everyone kind of agrees to at least look at all the options. That's not really true in the knowledge world. It's not okay to look at certain things in public. It's mm. not okay to ask certain questions in public. Um, and I think the metaphor that we use around knowledge has a lot of power to shift that. I'm, I'm very optimistic that if, if we can think of knowledge as a risk management problem, then we can all collectively forgive each other for considering things that they're not allowed to right now. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there's something to that. I, th- I, think, I, th- I do think this. That is promising in in some way, yeah. So it's an experiment. It's an experiment. I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that it'll work the way that that I imagine. Um, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned scoffing earlier. It kind of relates to that that we 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 scoff so often, or or people scoff so often that they don't realize the opportunity cost of scoffing. That you can yes. have scoffing, yes. Yes. or you can have a UFO that takes you to the moon, like you're going to McDonald's. Like which one? Yeah, which would you prefer? And, right, and and the nature of good ideas is that they can, you, you can get to a good idea by going through bad, like going through dodgy and strange territory, which people don't seem to realize. So, like, like we can we can have a conversation that starts out in complete woo territory where we're talking about nonsense, and then like along the way that brings you again, it's like metaphors and ideas, right? Like 
perspectives and frames. A, a, a strange metaphor in one domain can lead you to getting a breakthrough in another domain. And then you profit from that breakthrough, right? Like it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's just people, I guess people are, are just so uncomfortable with being wrong, which ties back to what we we're talking about. Childlike music. Oh, you know, uh, that's beautiful. There's this quote from Morris Sendak, the children's author who wrote um, Where the Wild Things Are. And he has beautiful, beautiful quotes about children and their experience of reality and how we dismiss them. And he has things about like how he says, um, children are able to navigate between fantasy and reality seamlessly in a way that adults no longer remember how to. And so it's it's when when children make things up, it's not that they believe that it's true. You know, it's not that they believe. And you could maybe they could they might be framing it in risk management terms that without without the language for it, right? Because I mean, they they don't yet have like consequences in their life that is such that they have to have certain uh, barriers and boundaries and stuff. But you know, if a belief doesn't do them any harm, they are able to to kind of experiment with it and have and have fun with it. And there are clear indicators that the highest performing, you know, now I'm reminded of a quote from Joseph Campbell and Joseph Campbell is talking about LSD in his quote, but it applies to all thinking and imagination. Like, so he's saying, you know, he's asking what's the difference between like a mystic or like a person having a a good psychedelic experience or a person, you know, and, and comparing it to a person who is like um, mentally having difficulties and they are like just uh, drown like so he, he uses a, a a metaphor of drowning and and swimming and he says that they all dive into the same waters but like the people who are skilled the mystics the the imagineers right they they have learned to to stay afloat and so they can enjoy the benefits of that activity whereas people who kind of uh you know they don't have the framework they don't have a way of thinking about it they they can't um process their experience for them it's chaotic and schizophrenic and it's just it's overwhelming and you know in a in a way you could say that our modern media technologies are throwing everyone into the deep end whether they like it or not and some of us are better equipped than others to kind of navigate it and i do understand the impulse that people have to kind of uh we must protect people from drowning therefore we must like cotton off the pool or whatever i understand, I understand the impulse but you know, um, that's not, it's not going to work. It's not sustainable. It's too late. Like the, the, that ship has sailed, right? Like the, 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 the torrential tsunami has come and there's many more waves behind it. And we need to quickly teach people to learn to swim. And it's like, you know, our, our schools and, and our society, our media, everything, they, 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 they almost do the opposite, right? They, they discourage people from, thinking for themselves and they they kind of get people to follow what the institutions want right like i was i was recently reviewing i was like so my my economics is not that great but so i was doing some reading recently out of curiosity and i was like and i i did take economics in junior college and i remember writing an essay in school like like this that's like like i took it for an examination at my a levels and it's like i i wrote a whole essay that that you're supposed to do for like Something about interest rates, something about monetary policy. And it's as I was re-reviewing content and looking at Wikipedia and, you know, asking people questions and watching videos and just trying to piece together a, an understanding that that is makes sense to me now. It blows my mind that I was expected at 17 years old to write an, a coherent, meaningful essay on monetary policy then. And of course, the truth is no school seriously expects a 17 year old 
to have any real understanding of monetary policy. So what's actually happening is that they are being trained to create the illusion of understanding by basically parroting out a bunch of talking points that they don't really understand. And that is how we do education. And then when the torrent comes, they're like, oh, wow, I know all these words, but none of it makes sense. And then it's just chaos, right? And it's yeah. just, yeah, it goes back to asking very childlike questions. What if this is true? What if it's not? You know, what, what's, what's the worst case outcome? Which is, again, it's like risk management, right? Like what, what happens when we don't understand this? What, what, when we change this, what happened there? And so on and so forth. Yeah. And the, the cost of, of being thought a fool tends to be very low compared to the costs of discovering things or the benefits of discovering things, the rewards. Uh, Taleb in, in Skin in the Game, which was kind of a big inspiration. Uh, I actually haven't read yeah. it, but I got the point, I think. He yeah. talks about institutions and people and experts that have uh, this sort of essay regurgitation mentality of creating the mm. impression of expertise without any particular connection to the consequences of their failure to understand something. And it seems like the education system is engineered to produce that, the sort of disconnection yes. from consequence, the sort of disconnection from meaning. And this was probably the number one thing that frustrated me in academia, which I es escaped as fast as I psychologically could, <laughs> was yeah. that all of the work I was doing, I knew would only travel as far as the teacher's desk and back. All of right. this effort was just going into an empty void of, of nothing. It wasn't going to help anyone. It wasn't going to like, I, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but it was a sense of alienation. It was every bit as much as, as working for sub, uh, a corporation that kind of does evil and doesn't really care yeah. about anything but the bottom line. Yeah. Um, I remember... So in High Output Management by Andy Grove, who wrote this book in like, I think this maybe 70s, maybe 80s, like just he's talking about like how to run a business, you know, as well as you can and, and manage well and blah, blah, blah. And along the way, he talks about making projections, right? And he says that, you know, he, he, he draws out like this, this chart where you make your projections for the next three months, let's say, on how much your, your sector is going to produce. And then you make your predictions for this, for the next three months. And then next month, you 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 correct what was the actual you write down what was the actual what was the actual amount produced and then you project the next three months again and then it creates like this staggered chart of all the predictions and all the actual outcomes so you can see from the chart like how how far off were you from reality and he then casually says wouldn't it be nice if like all you know academics and all just pundits and economists were asked to share their projection diagrams and I'm like. Yeah, like, you know, and how, how do we not have this as a as a species trying to make sense of things? And we are not doing that. We're not we're not kind of calib like tabulating our predictions. Like seems like a very basic thing that should be done if we are serious about knowing what we're talking about. And so you have to conclude that people are not serious <laughs> about knowing the truth. And that is but again and and here's so here's an obvious hypothesis. Uh, you know, so Andy Grove did that because it was profitable for him to do so. Because when he got a good sense of his own predictions, he could make projections about what how to allocate resources in his company, and his company did very well under him. And similarly, like I think what we are kind of going for with something like idea markets is that if people get good at making predictions and and making claims, and other people can verify that, and then it's like there is value in having predictive 
power, right? Or just being relatively more accurate than mainstream wisdom, which as we established earlier, is like if they think Zuckerberg's left-handed, like it's like it's not at all difficult to be better than average at predicting things. And those people should be rewarded. They should be prioritized over the the media, the mean, the median, the median utterances. And yeah, yeah, you know, I think we care a lot about the same things. It's like, it's just, it makes no sense that we, I mean, okay, I understand why we do it, but it's so outdated. Like we have, we've had the technology to do better for some time. Uh, but I guess the coordination mechanisms were not quite there and imagination, people's imagination was not quite there. But, it, you know, the, the, the great thing about, you only need to be right once, right? Like I think Drew Houston has that quote. So once you get it right and it's obviously correct, other people will follow it. And then we can, we can go from there. Yeah. And I, I appreciate and, and share your optimism about this in the sense that like, we have to conclude that people aren't serious about wanting truth. And at the same time, we're, I, I wanna, I'm inclined to let people off the hook a little bit for being victims mm-hmm. of the infrastructure that they were born into. Of course, yeah. People are tired, overwhelmed. Yeah, and, and, no it's, not that, and, and they, it's not only that they are, are not serious about wanting truth, but our institutions are set up to reward other things. There are all these competing things that we, we are not really free to pursue what might be our more uh, honest desires. Uh, mm. we, our, our first episode was with Vinay Gupta, a good friend of mine who, uh, in another podcast. Mm, great, yeah. I love him, man. He's awesome. He talked about something that he calls the monster factory, which is where you, you wake up in Western civilization, you have to, you know, put food on the table and you go to your job and you, you know, pass by the homeless person on the street who's next to the building that you work in. And you, it, there's a conflict of interest between giving that person money and putting food on your own table. And so society sort of trains you to become uh, calloused. It sort of turns people into monsters as a mass, as a matter of necessity for doing something that's genuinely necessary for taking care of your family, right. for doing these things. Uh, the, the current incentives sort of um, leverage our biggest personal necessities into ignoring our biggest social necessities. And that has a mm. corrosive effect on the heart. And I think with the internet and with all yeah. the tools that we have now, yeah, I think we, we can do better and that there's a lot of room to, to improve upon that. Yeah, there, there is a... There is, you know, to to kind of put it very simplistically, there is a there is a hypocrisy between the reality of of our social environment and kind of the ideals that that same society claims to profess. And again, not not to point fingers at any specific individual for this, but like because of this this mismatch, and then people have to live in between, right? It's a it's it's partially de- it's like a bit dehumanizing it's a bit um people have to construct uh, i'm just repeating what you're saying i guess people have to construct this kind of shell to to inhabit that that chaos right and that shell is costly to construct and maintain like psychologically emotionally and yeah so there is uh there's much to be done <laughs> absolutely i wanted to ask in our in our final few minutes here we were talking earlier about uh, the big short and the social danger of going against the grain, particularly mm-hmm. when you're alone. And you said there are, there are certain things on Twitter that you don't want to say because they attract the wrong audience. 
if if you're yeah. more comfortable sharing here, I'm interested. What's your big short? Do you have some of these like dangerous bets that are not uh, easily I mean, talked about? It's I mean, so I've already, I would say that I have been talking about it the the whole podcast basically, but I never yeah. kind of. I never, I, I never combine all the things together in one thing. Like I piece it together in separate parts so that a thoughtful person who's listening to the whole thing, they can, you know, hear everything and they will connect the dots and be like, oh, he's saying we're going to change this here. We're going to change this here. We're going to change this here. But if we do all three of those things, we're going like, that's going to add up to something bigger. Right. But like, uh, that's, that's how I frame it. Um, I will try to... I, don't I guess think I'm. I'm I mean, I, I feel. I feel the big picture you're alluding to. So I don't mean to imply that I didn't. I, I guess I'm wondering yeah, about I know, something I know specific yeah. and weird, like like uh, like the UFO thing that I mentioned earlier. Oh, I mean, yeah. So I don't. Not, not so much some external event or some external outcome about the way the world is, but just my my radical idea is is so. It's again, it's so mundane that a lot of people, I think, kind of just gloss over it. Like, huh. Which is that, again, it's like people have not woken up to what we can do with social media and people underestimate um, the power of making friends and building relationships. People's intuitions are miscalibrated, basically. People's intuitions are miscalibrated for, like we still, I mean, and, and you can you can kind of zoom all the way back and say that we still live like we are on the African savannah, you know, scarcity mindset and and hunting and whatnot. But like I would say even even compared to 20 years ago, like so video is cheap to make. And this wasn't true 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, if you want to make a video, like you need a, like it's just, te- it's, and it was cheaper than it was before. So like um, maybe, I, I do think that the kids these days, like Gen Z kids and later, because they were born with cheap video, like being able, like you can just make video at any time. They take to TikTok and stuff more quickly than us but there's a cost to that which is that because that's a part of their environment um they don't remember what it's like before and they there's, there's a bunch of nuance there about uh just there's a benefit to straddling both worlds and that goes back to what we we're talking about with uh, obama and trevor noah and all that that like, i think people like us we we were from the old world sort of and we uh have our feet in the new world at the same time and I believe this gives us a very narrow window of opportunity. I mean, a, a window of opportunity to kind of synthesize the old world and the new. Like, so the, the new kids are incubating a new world that, you know, like amazing thing that's happening on TikTok is that kids from different countries, they're all using similar sign language in their dance. So they're developing a kind of international sign language. That's amazing. The kids are doing that, like just by having fun, right? Like, it's, and there are going to be implications of that, that us old folks don't relate yet or understand. But you know they are they are not yet plugged into the economy and and all those things that we are. So we we have a duty and a responsibility to kind of help to steward that in a way that maximizes the chance of you know the thing that's looming is climate collapse, right? Climate disaster. Like if that wasn't in the picture, like uh, we can it can be all entirely cheerful. I'm sure Vinay talked at length about climate disaster stuff, right? Um, yeah, that is a concern. Like how are we gonna fix that and solve that? And my solution to everything is basically make friends. It's like, I feel that um, our species, again, any, any big problem requires a big coordinated solution and we need to get better at coordinating. And people underestimate how much coordination they can do. Like they can, like just 
and and all of this is old wisdom actually. So it's like it's like I sometimes feel like I'm a bit crazy because I'm just repackaging old wisdom and bringing it to the table, but no one else is doing it. So it's like somebody has to. Do. It's it's you know so like Montaigne also said you know if I write a book, like one of the reasons I'm writing is because if I want to get to know someone impressive, like uh, by putting down all my thoughts in advance, uh, other people can. I, I give the guy an advantage because he can read all of my thoughts and then when we interface, we don't have to waste time having like a very slow and tedious back and forth conversation. He can just read all of my mind and we can jump ahead. And like modern media tech allows us to do that at scale immensely and people aren't really doing it. Like, like So in my mind, what I'm doing on Twitter and YouTube and everything else I'm going to do, I'm kind of speed running, um, building relationships with the best people I can find. And I don't really see anybody else doing the same thing. I, I'm I'm kind of like implanting the idea in other people's minds. I don't want to force anyone to do it because if they don't feel a natural impulse to do it, it's probably not worth pushing them pushing them to do it. Because there are costs. There are like you know like the being a public figure and whatnot, it's it's it has its costs. But I don't see people trying to do what I'm trying to do, which is really speed run this this building a uh, uh adjacent public that could exist that's my so it's so like so that's kind of my ufo it's like there is a possible social reality that does not currently exist except in our imaginations that we can drag people into we just need consensus i think uh balaji srinivasan he talks about this quite a lot like he talks about the networked state and uh you know migrating to the internet and whatnot uh, I think he talks about it in a bit of an abstract way. And I have a very grounded perspective on this, which is it's really just make friends, my God. Like, go out and talk to 10,000 people. Like, the I, the fact that we can talk to 10,000 people, like, like just every day talk to 10 new people, it's a, it's a source of wealth and hardly anyone's doing it. Like, most people just talk to their same friends every day. They preach to the choir, they, they quote, tweet, whatever. But if you're, like, deliberately reaching out for new people, to build a new audience, you can you can collect the people that you want, but you know you can you can articulate what you again. This sounds so childlikely simple. You can describe what you want, and then like speed date thousands of people to say this is what I want. What do you think about this? They're like that makes no sense. Okay, bye. This is what I want. What do you think about this? And they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Cool. You are now you are now my friend. Let me introduce you to like eight other guys who also care about this. Cool. Join those guys. Next guy. You know, this is what I want. And then you just do that very intensely, and you have very high standards. So very often the people who who kind of follow the behavior of what I just described, they do it because they just want a lot of friends and they just want a lot of status. And so they don't have like ambitious goals. They're like, they're like, you know, I'm so sexy or I'm so just what I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a I'm so fashionable. I'm so some something that gets you status in a conventional way. Again, I, I don't judge them for doing what they're doing. Props to them for getting what they want. But it's like because those people are the most highly visible examples of that. You know, music stars, actors, great. It's cool that they're entertaining people. I love it. I, I love to see it. But because that is the dominant assumption of what celebrity looks like, people have no idea that it's possible to network aggressively with goals in mind, right? We're trying to build a cultural institution, trying to... Like, I think a lot about... Um, there's a quote from... Um, Marshall McLuhan... Malcolm McLuhan? Marshall McLuhan? Oh my Marshall God, McLuhan, yeah. Spazzing. Marshall McLuhan, right? He was writing a letter to Ezra Pound and he was saying, uh, let's try and get about a dozen people, dozen quality people 
in like a in like a same city and let's see what happens right and he was saying you know so they, they saw each other as a lennon mccartney kind of like we, we both get it we're both really smart we're both really perceptive and if we can get a dozen people like ourselves in the same room or in the same city and we can meet once in a while uh we can make magic happen like they, they had the understanding but they couldn't find the right people and they couldn't um you know you know like like he was his letter was like pessimistic. It's like sad. It's like, if only we could find these people and get them together. I'm like, oh my God, the poor guy didn't have Twitter, right? The guy didn't have the opportunity to aggressively seek out people online and introduce them to each other. So I almost feel like we have an obligation, you know, even if we don't talk about uh, outcomes, right? I feel obliged to do this for the ancestors, you know, for Montaigne and for Emerson and for Da Vinci, for all those guys who, if they had our technology, they would find each other immediately and be like, what do you think? What do you care about? What do you, you know, like find, find the best people in every major city in the world, introduce them to each other. And, you know, and sometimes when I tell people this, they're like, oh, but what do you want them to do? I'm like, it's not what I want to do that matters, right? Because that collective intelligence will be smarter than me by freaking, it will be like an AI, like a AI right? Like just a thousand people who in conversation with each other, because a lot, and a lot of these people have never met somebody else who gets them. And so they haven't put in the effort to articulate all of their thoughts because they rationally and correctly believe that it would be a waste of their time. So every one of these connections that you make, it encourages people to come out and say things. And, you know, if you look at the history of all of human progress, it happens, you know, human progress, if you zoom out all the way, it looks kind of like a straight line. You zoom in, it's fucking spiky. You know, during like the Gupta age in India, they invented zero. During the Baghdad golden age, they invented um, like, what did they invent? <laughs> Algebra and, and algorithms, right? And then like during the Renaissance, it's like just, there are these, and these windows of opportunity, they're like 10 years-ish, 10 to 20, maybe 50 to 80 years. Italian Renaissance, maybe 200 years. But like it's these over 10,000, 20,000 years of human history. It's like there are these 10-year windows where a city is doing well enough economically. You know, the wars have changed, whatever trade is happening. There's enough money in the same place, enough people who want to do intelligent shit. And then like there's some trade going on and everyone goes to the same place. You know, Vienna, Baghdad, Shakespeare in London. There are all these places where people accumulate and gather and then they just do amazing shit that moves the whole species forward. And we can reverse engineer this. Again, I think it's I, I think it's insane that we don't have people discussing this every single day. How do we reverse engineer a golden age? It can be, it can surely be done, right? Like uh, but it does require people who are not trying to optimize for personal profit in the short run. It does require people who are visionary thinking like 50 years ahead, right? Like uh, th th there's a bunch of reasons why it's not happening. I, I know why it's not happening. Like it's just, we don't have the right people in the room yet, but they are scattered around. And a lot of them, you know, they when you find them, they're not super optimistic because they haven't met the others yet. Or they are not, you know, like there's just a bunch of reasons why it's not happened yet, but it's all, everything's like 95%, 92%, like just need to get these people in the right alignment. And yeah, that is my UFO. The idea that I believe is possible that we can create a golden age in our times, right? In our lifetime. Like, so if I consider you guys as part of this, this vision in a sense, right? If we can get a thousand people together, maybe 10,000, I don't know what the number is, right? I don't know who the right people are, but like, you know, historically, again, you have you have uh, Shakespeare's London, you have um, Da Vinci's Florence, right? You have uh, I, I consider Al Khwarizmi's Baghdad, which people don't really think about as much. But like, there are these small pockets in 
time in human history, like 1920s Hemingway's Paris, right? Like there's all these where the things that were done there echo for eternity forever. Like we we just, you know, uh, the Athens Pericles, right? And we can do that. You know, I think people don't, people wake up in the morning and they feel depressed and sad. Like, you know, they're just like, uh, life is paying the bills and going about. I'm like, we can... <laughs> you know, we can create glory days in our lifetime and we don't need to be like as great as those guys because we have technology that allows us to do things that they could not. So we have like a buff, I mean, but the, on the flip side, uh, they weren't bombarded with like negative media and stuff that discouraged them and made them give up. So we do have a, a different challenge, right? We don't need to be like math geniuses because we can find math geniuses elsewhere, but we do need to have that optimism and that that dynamism and willingness to move fast and not give up and persist for 50 years, right? And which I will, I promise I will do. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 I don't see why it can't be done. Like, it, and it has, it, it, once it can be imagined, it must be done. You know, it's just, it's, 100%. it's it would be, yeah, it has to be done. We, we got to do it for, for, for glory, right? For our descendants, for humanity. It's really, it just, it has to be done. Love that. That is, that is awesome. And dimensions that could never, could never capture hundred percent agree. Um, mm-hmm. We have, we, we have the desire, we have the reasons, we have the resources. It, it yeah. must be an inevitability. It's, yes, it's uh, it 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 wants to happen, and all the ingredients. It does are want there. to happen. Yes, yeah. Uh, so so visa, just uh, getting you know near the end here. Where, whereabouts can we find about your about your stuff? You know, you do so much stuff. Where's where's the best place to start with what it is you're doing? And how can people contact you? How how can new friends come and contact you? Uh, so the best way to contact me would be to DM me on Twitter, I guess, or email me. But like, it's like, I, I reply faster to Twitter DMs. So um, the way you spell my username everywhere is my is my name and my last initial, which is V-I-S-A-K-A-N-V. So you just Google that and you'll see my Twitter, my YouTube, my personal website. Like uh, you can go wherever you want. So if you prefer to watch videos, you can go and watch videos. You can even search that on Spotify and you'll see the playlists that I have the, the, the other people's podcasts that I've gone on. And yeah, you know, um, if you have any interesting ideas, if you're working on anything cool, like you can just DM me on Twitter or yeah, I think that's probably the best way to, to get to me. Like or just mention me on Twitter, right? And let's play long games and do interesting things. 100%. Looking forward to seeing you in the, uh, in, in the metaverse. Yes. It's coming. The metaverse is coming. But yeah, Mike, before we finish up, is there anything you want to add in or Visa, anything you want to say just before we finish up here? I have nothing that could follow uh, Visa's golden age speech there, which <laughs> yeah. I could listen to on repeat in my sleep. Yeah, uh, that's basically so, yeah, uh, it's yeah. a strong end. I think that's a strong end. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Visa, thanks very much for coming on.